0: Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. In the last couple of weeks, protests sparked by the death of George Floyd have focused the nation's attention. The protests are about more than one man's wrongful death. They're challenging the nation's deep history of racism and the police's disproportionate violence towards people of color. Today, we start to bring this national discussion down to the local level. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP, has been around for 120 years, with the mission to ensure educational, social, economic, and political equality and rights of all people. We talked with Sheree Meeks, vice president of the organization's Tucson chapter, about the events of the last couple of weeks and the larger discussion at play about racism and police violence.
1: Our charge really is to do what we can to dismantle systems of oppression and to work to uh, end racism.
0: Tucson is one of a couple of cities in the country that has completed the eight can't wait strategies for policing. Those include things like a ban on chokeholds and strangleholds, warning before shooting, requirements for reporting and use of force continuum. Do you think those policies have made a difference here in terms of police interactions with the communities, especially Tucson's communities of color?
1: I think those policies make a difference. We need to have policies in place so when things do happen, we have that to be able to say either you were in compliance with this rule and this regulation or you were not. So having those in place is is important, and I think that it has impacted our community. These policies are there for a reason. You know, we have a positive working relationship um, with the police chief, uh, Chief Magnus, and um, we are pleased with the things that he has implemented here in Tucson, and we um, hope to see that happen in police departments and the surrounding area.
0: You may have just surprised a few people when you said— the chief and Tucson police are doing a pretty good job and you have an open dialogue with them. That's not something we're hearing a whole lot of right now. I think uh, some folks may be surprised.
1: They may be. And I think that what happens is, you know, we are not a monolithic people. You know, there's diversity within our community. Um, And I'm speaking on behalf of the NAACP. You know, we have done um, our due diligence and doing the research and seeing practices and procedures uh, that have happened um, here and there. And so we We know a little bit, you know, and I was actually just in a meeting yesterday um, with Assistant Chief Hall um, and some others from the police department and the fact that we we have their ear, they are willing to listen. Um, And that did not just happen last week. So um, as we have uh, mandates and, and concerns that come down from our national office to say, we encourage you to talk to your police departments about these things, we're able to do that.
0: What are some of the changes that the NAACP in Tucson has recommended to the Tucson Police Department?
1: So uh, we have uh, a document uh, that has been prepared from our national office, and we are using that to uh, really drive what we are asking for. And a portion of that really just uh, is about a ban on the use of knee holds and choke holds as an acceptable practice for police officers. Uh, The use of force continuum for any police department in the country uh, must ensure that there are at least six levels of steps with clear rules on escalation. Uh, the third is that each state's Open Records Act would ensure that officers misconduct information and discipl- disciplinary histories um, not be shielded from the public. Um, We're also um, asking about the recertification credentials and that they would be denied for officers if it is determined that their use of deadly force was unwarranted by federal guidelines and an implementation of a citizens review board in municipalities uh, to hold police departments accountable and build public trust. We're, we're asking for assurance. We're asking for levels of accountability. This didn't just happen last week. This is something that we've been seeing for years. And so it is time uh, to, to hold police departments and police officers accountable for their actions.
0: We have seen these protests across the nation, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe more than that. We've seen protests here in Tucson during the last week and a half. Do you think there has been value to the marches? And what do you think about what's happening locally with them?
1: I think the protests uh, are absolutely valuable for for so many reasons. Historically, protests have been a way for people to have their voices heard, for people to come together collectively around issues that they are concerned about and to demonstrate solidarity. I think that is so important. Um, You know, we we may be a a community um, with different opinions, different ideas, but to be able to come together around something that impacts all of us Um, It impacts all of us, Um, has been really powerful to see across not just the country, but across the globe. But I will say that when people walk around on a daily basis with pain and grief and anger and, you know, the the weight of uh, systemic oppression, the weight of racism, the weight of police brutality, the weight of violence. When we walk around with that daily, it's no surprise um, that there is an uprising.
0: As you said, people walk around with a lot of weight. These protests, maybe they started out about police issues or policing issues, but it's a much larger historic systemic racism that that's going on and people are beginning to talk about what do everyday citizens need to do to help stop that?
1: I think there's so much for us to do and everyone can play a part. Um, I, I like to say that there are levels to this. So for some people, it may be getting out into the community and protesting. For others, it may be reading a book and reflecting on the history of oppression. For someone else, it might be meeting with TPD and meeting with the uh, Pima County Sheriff's Department and others. For someone else, it's going to be writing a letter to their representatives. For someone else, It will be voting, hopefully for all those of age, it will be voting. Um, (laughs) All of these are things that can help make our community better because we are, I think now we are consciously thinking about the ways that police brutality and violence are impacting communities of color, specifically black communities. But there's something different that I think is happening now, and we need to use this momentum to do our part, to call, to educate ourselves, to read, to write op-eds, to really dismantle this thing. So I just want to encourage um, everyone to continue to do that work and to do that work when we no longer uh, see the images on the television screen, Um, because it's going to take time. It's going to take time to change that. But I know that here locally, it can can be done.
0: All right. Thanks for spending some time with us.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciated talking with you.
0: That was Shereem Meeks, vice president of the Tucson NAACP. The moment we're in now does not exist in a temporal bubble. We are the inheritors of history, a lot of history, much of it unrecorded and unseen. Angus Anderson has been recording some of that lost history through Archive Tucson, an oral history project from the special collection at the University of Arizona Libraries. Today, he brings us the perspective of some black Tucsonans on racism they experienced firsthand.
2: You know, our teachers at Dunbar tried to gear us for Tucson High. You know, you're going to Tucson High and things are going to be different. Because they're all white. Don't go up there acting. Put your best foot forward. But you've got to deal with the white people. And you know they don't want you.
3: That was Joel Turner talking about leaving the segregated Dunbar School and getting ready to attend an integrated Tucson High in
2: 1946. They gave us good advice. Well, the main skill was to keep your mouth closed and stay out and, and don't get close to the police. You don't know, never trust the police. I don't trust them now because of the way I grew up. I think I must have been about 12. I might have been 10. But I bought my own bicycle. I was shining shoes at Jimmy's right there at 6th and Congress. And right down the street, you had a bicycle motorcycle shop. And I had $25 that I'd made. I couldn't find a bicycle in there for that. But I had a white guy there with a bicycle that he was trying to sell, and he sold it to me. And I had enough sense to get a bill of sales. Back in those days, you had to get a license on your bicycle. I'd had the bicycle a while. Went down to Russell and Shepard. Russell and Shepard was a bicycle shop, and I went down there to get that license. So they hemmed and hawed with me, and they called the police. I didn't know they'd call the police, and the police came and told me the bike was stolen, and that I stole it. I told them, no, I didn't steal the bike. So they took me down to the police station. I showed them the Bill of sale. They said, you wrote that. Well, I didn't write the Bill of sale. They knew damn well I didn't write that. And they took me downstairs in a black room with a ceiling light hanging down, just like you see in the movies, and interrogated me. Oh, they kept me down there all afternoon. And uh, I was scared to death. Eventually, about 7 o'clock, they let me go home and took my bike. I have never liked a policeman since then.
3: A year later, the police finally returned Joel Turner's bike. Stories like Joel's let us visit the past, expand our sense of experience, broaden history beyond traditional sources, and look at the present in a different light. This is Barbara Lewis. She attended Dunbar several years after Joel Turner.
4: Our motto was be the best. And I think we all tried very hard to be that because What was said was, you're black, and you have to be better than anybody else to be able to get even the lowest job or whatever there. You have to be better. You need to make sure your fingernails are clean. Always. Hair, everything neat about you. Everything low-key about you in appearance, but sharp brain-wise. And it was low-key, we were Negroes then. Now my father, his criticism of Dunbar was that it was a subjugated school. And yeah, we were. So then everybody came down on him for saying that because there's the beloved principal, Mr. Maxwell. And he was wonderful, I can't say, but he was doing the best he knew how to keep us going. I don't know if any other school in the city when the superintendent visited, the students had to stand up, bow, and go, good morning, Miss tomorrow Now, if that—I <laughs> I know other kids at other schools like who didn't do that.
3: It's so easy to map this interview onto today. The double standards, the tension in how to respond to injustice. Here's Charles Kendrick, who enrolled in the University of Arizona College of Pharmacy in 1950.
5: Well, my first day on campus was the worst day of my life. When I signed up for ROTC, I'm with Korea out of the force. By the time I got in, I make a, you know, make a living from it. But the Colonel Donaldson, I'll call his name, head of the ROTC, walked out of that line, it was a straight line, it'd be about two blocks long, stopped in front of me said, from here on back, taking this line over here, getting the Army ROTC.
3: Is that because you were black? Or is that, just, is that just another I was the only
5: line? black in line. Oh, okay, you were I was the only black in line. There wasn't nobody up there but me. So you know? he decided
3: that So he, he stopped right in
5: front of me. My plans for career in the military was gone. This that quick. Now cafeteria at noontime, same day, and I'm standing in line, they waiting on everybody but me. People behind me, they start waiting on them so they wouldn't serve me in the cafeteria. But what really hurt most of all, uh, when I went registered for employee, hey, sign up for my a discount here, said, who are you? I said, my dad worked for the university. Oh, what does he do? I said, he worked for maintenance. What kind of job he got? I said, he's a janitor. He sat back down in his chair and told me, janitor's kids do not count. My dad worked for janitor there for the president of the university, Harvard and President McCormick, and then I never got a penny, a scholarship aid. So I got, that still hurts.
3: Whether we recognize it or not, that history affects us today. Nobody would dispute that our technology is directly built upon the work of yesterday's scientists and inventors. Our culture is no different. The injustice of 17th century slave law is here, today, dampened by the Civil War, dampened by the Civil Rights Act, yes, but manifest in the distribution of wealth and opportunity, in medical care and incarceration rates, and of course, in violence and you simply cannot form an accurate picture of what is happening today, you cannot make today better without looking backward. I'm
0: Angus Anderson. Those stories come from Archive Tucson, an oral history project from Special Collections at the University of Arizona Libraries. Listen to the full interviews at archivetucson.com. And for more stories about black life in Tucson, check out Sadie Shaw's Sugar Hill Oral History Project on SoundCloud. The first weekend that protests erupted around the country in response to George Floyd's death, Arizona's governor instituted a week-long statewide curfew. Tucson's police chief, Chris Magnus, says the curfew helped, even though Tucson's protest activity has been relatively calm compared to other places. As of last week, he says TPD arrested 31 people in relation to the protests for curfew violations, obstructing the street, and aggravated assault on a police officer. Chief Magnus attended a Black Lives Matter vigil held last week at the Dunbar Pavilion. My primary purpose uh, at the vigil was to listen.
6: It was to make connections wherever I could um, to the degree that there were people who were willing to Talk to me informally, and perhaps um, look for opportunities to coordinate work together in the future. I think we made some good contacts, but really, my purpose was was to listen to hear that, and I think that was really an important thing.
0: What did you hear from people in Tucson?
6: Well, I heard the I heard the pain uh, that people feel related to um, systemic racism, uh, to contacts that. Uh, there, you know that they've seen involving the police, uh, not so much here in Tucson, uh, but certainly in other places, particularly around the country, and the feeling of really being um, potentially a victim of police violence, um, and in some cases having already experienced that. So very troubling to hear those things. I don't think uh, representative of. Uh, what people have experienced here in Tucson. But even here, this is something that we're always concerned
0: about. Do we get a lot of complaints of police violence, uh, what some people call police brutality here in Tucson?
6: We do not. Um, But if we do get complaints related to use of force, um, they are very thoroughly investigated. We have a very competent and really high quality Office of Professional Standards that looks into complaints. Uh, They're carefully investigated. We have the opportunity to use uh, body cameras, which all our officers wear. Uh, So we can look at that kind of footage. We look at accounts from other officers. Uh, We take these kind of complaints very seriously. But fortunately, there are, are very few, despite the size of our city.
0: You mentioned accounts from other officers, the incident in Minneapolis that has led to the death of George Floyd. There were a number of officers there. Do you train TPD officers to, if there is an incident like that and somebody is doing something that another officer feels is incorrect, that they should step in and and deescalate it or stop it?
6: Right, we do more than train. Um, It is in our policy. It is an absolute expectation and, It's incorporated into training uh, as well, but it's something that we look for in any situation where we have to use force uh, to make sure that that force is not excessive or to make sure that officers are not going further than they need to go in terms of using the least amount of force necessary to make an arrest, for example, or handle a situation. So that's very important to us. And I think it's one of the reasons why our officers almost you know, every single one of them, I think, looked at that video and were appalled, not just by the, the direct force that was used um, on George Floyd, but also the the fact that other officers just seemed to stand around or even contribute in some way. And, and then the one other thing that we expect that I didn't see in that video is that officers, if they do use force, even deadly force, they render first aid immediately. They carry... Um, Individual first aid kits. They carry tourniquets. They're trained in first aid and CPR. And I've uh, seen that, and it's kind of amazing transition when you have somebody that is threatening you, um, that has been assaulted towards you, and you use force, and then uh, officers rendering first aid imme- immediately. I think that speaks to our culture and our training.
0: There are those who are looking at qualified immunity, which allows officers to stay out of court uh, very often in incidents like this. Uh, Of course, in Minneapolis, uh, officers have been charged with murder, but um, is it time, for example, in Arizona, for the legislature to look at qualified immunity and maybe tweak it a little?
6: I think some tweaks are appropriate. I think there's some reasons for qualified immunity, which are more complex sometimes than the public understands, but I think Um, that immunity and the use of that may have gone too far at this point. And I think there are valid reasons for looking at that again and applying that uh, perhaps more appropriately.
0: It seems like the police have lost the trust of of a lot of communities, uh, large communities and communities of color across the country. Do you have that feeling about TPD and Tucson?
6: I do not. Um, I'm out a lot in the community, as are others in my executive team. Um, And we are continually measuring, um, you know, where the community is in terms of feedback, whether it's communities of color, whether it's people in various neighborhoods, whether we're talking about the LGBT community. Um, It's important to us to hear those voices and to listen to what people have to say. And uh, look, we're always open to feedback. We're not perfect, we're a large agency, we have a lot of members, but I think overwhelmingly we do have public support here and there has been a lot of work well before you know, a crisis period to build that trust. And I think now is a time where that particularly pays off.
0: Thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. That was Tucson Police Chief, Chris Magnus. An online petition to defund and disband the Tucson Police Department recently garnered more than 10,000 signatures, and advocates made their case to the mayor and city council at a public hearing Tuesday. As Jake Steinberg reports, the debate centers around whether reforms TPD has already made go far enough. A warning to listeners. This story contains sound of a police encounter and mention of suicide. All right.
7: Joseph Zimmerman called 911 and said he had a gun. In clear distress, he told the operator he didn't want to live anymore. He wanted the police to shoot him.
3: Come on, brother, just drop the gun.
7: They did. Zimmerman died in May 2017 after he pointed what appeared to be a gun at officers. They later found out it was a BB gun. Diagnosed with bipolar disorder, he had recently lost his father and a close friend, according to his mother, Angelina.
1: He was trying to find somebody to talk to, but instead, he was shot.
7: Zimmerman's mother filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Tucson Police Department, but later dropped the case out of financial concerns. The Pima County Attorney's Office found that officers acted in self-defense. Even in a city with a self-styled, progressive police department, officers are still routinely dispatched to respond to issues that arise from mental health emergencies, drug addiction, and
5: homelessness. These are people who are, are told to go out and maintain order, and oftentimes the resources they have are not going to be geared towards helping with a societal or a mental health issue.
7: Roberto Villaseñor is a former TBD chief and was a member of President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. He says he doesn't support disbanding the department, but shifting funding could help address problems that are currently left to the police.
5: Police have been responding to things for a while primarily because no one else was available. You know, when you have a mental crisis at three in the morning, there's really not that many, many mental health professionals that will respond.
7: But calls to disband the police go further. The death of George Floyd has increased national awareness of the systemic racism within law enforcement. Police Chief Chris Magnus has defended TPD's culture and reforms made over his tenure. Tucson is now one of two departments in America's 100 largest cities to fully adopt Eight Can't Wait, a set of policies aimed at reducing police violence, including a duty to intervene if officers use excessive force and requiring a verbal warning before shooting. But groups advocating for defunding the TPD argue the department's reforms are, at best, damage reduction. TPD data from 2015 through 2019 reveal black people in Tucson are still disproportionately arrested and shot by police. Despite making up about 5% of Tucson's population, black people were nearly 13% of those arrested and 12% of those shot by TPD. The department established a force review board in 2017, in part to increase public oversight. The board includes officers and six community members who have voting power to recommend policy changes or discipline. Board member Tracy Hockett says growing up black on Tucson's South Side, she witnessed a lot of police abuse. She's used her position on the board to teach officers if someone runs from the police, it doesn't necessarily mean they're guilty.
4: We call it the talk. If your is Don't teach you not to run from the police. If you don't get the talk, then they're going to run.
7: More often than not, the board finds officers' use of force justified. They only consider what an officer knew in the moment when faced with a split-second decision. Board Chairman Lieutenant Corey Doggett also leads the department's advanced training.
0: And so if we agree it's justified, we can still make a recommendation that says, although appropriate in this particular case, I believe the officer should have had better equipment or been trained to use the escalation in a different way or something like that.
7: The board also found officers' use of force justified in the death of Joseph Zimmerman. His mother, Angelina, doesn't agree. She says the police didn't do enough to determine if her son had a real gun.
1: These two cops had training and mental health. I wish that they would have called me, asked me if Joe had a real gun or not. I mean, they were right across the street.
7: But the Forest Review Board only examines police behavior. Critics say we still need to address the more fundamental question of whether police should be there to begin with. For The Buzz, I'm Jake Steinberg. And that's The
0: Buzz for this week. We'll continue to discuss these matters on the show. Reach out via our website or social pages to tell us what you think and what we should talk about. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Antaveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.